Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Judge Business Debate. My name is Michael Kitson and I'm an economist here at Cambridge Judge Business School. In this series, specialists from the Business School and the wider Cambridge community discuss and debate topical issues of business and management. Today's session is slightly different as it was recorded in San Francisco during the Executive MBA's international business trip to Silicon Valley. You may notice a difference in audio quality, but I'm sure you will enjoy the discussion. Okay, hello and welcome. I'm in San Francisco with my colleague from Cambridge, Dr. Joachim Krunzen, and participants of the Cambridge EMBA 2017 class. Uh, all the EMBA students are here as part of their international business trip, which we're spending in San Francisco this week. Uh, and joining us also are alums from uh, the Judge Business School and the University of Cambridge and from other departments in the University of Cambridge. Today we are discussing the success and challenges facing the Silicon Valley High Technology Cluster. With Joachim and me today, we have two distinguished guests from the Silicon Valley area. We have Lisa Van Dusen, who is the Chief Relationship Officer at SV2, which is a Silicon Valley social venture fund. And also we have Nazim, Naeem Zafar, who has been teaching at the University of California at Berkeley since 2005. He is the Dean's Teaching Fellow, Lecturer and in Industry Fellow at the Center for Entrepreneurship and Technology. So we welcome particularly our two distinguished guests from Silicon Valley, Lisa and Naeem. Um, just to kick off, it would really be very useful to know, both from Lisa and Naeem, what, what you actually do in the Silicon Valley cluster. So, so Lisa, tell, tell us what your role is here in, in Silicon Valley. Uh, I've played a lot of different roles. My current role is at SV2. Um, and we are, think of us as a, um, a venture capital firm, an early stage venture capital firm for the social sector. So we, we do both um, grant making, we are structured as a nonprofit organization and we're an intermediary between funders and um, early stage organizations that have um, a social impact or hope for social impact and some of which are also for-profit companies and have the potential for a financial return. Um, we have in Silicon Valley right now, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more, an extraordinary level of um, wealth and financial success. Um, 76,000 millionaires and billionaires in uh, the two counties south of here. And what we do at SV2 is try to connect that with the growing need um, on the social side. Um, there's, there's a lot of inequality that um, is, creates opportunities for, for um, as people around here like to say, making the world a better place. We're actually working on that every day. Um, so my role uh, ranges from um, help, helping bring in new innovative offerings. We've created different kinds of grant rounds. We have introduced um, impact investing. We are doing collaborative um, projects to, to take on larger goals, longer term goals that we could do, any one organization could take on on their own. Um, we work a lot with different strategic allies um, in all sectors. And, um, and I, I get to meet with um, some of the area's um, largest philanthropists and some of the newest ones. So happy to answer more questions on that. Great. Th thank you, Lisa. Naeem, you're, you're at Berkeley, but you're also a serial entrepreneur. So tell, tell us what you're doing. That's right. Um, Born in Pakistan, I'm an electrical engineer, and I came here to go to Brown University. And funny enough, both of us went to Brown University out in Rhode Island, East Coast. And uh, we end up seeing each other at reunions. <laughs> and sometimes here. Sometimes here, yeah. yeah. And so I'm a, I'm a startup guy. I'm doing my seventh startup right now. 
so this is in uh, Internet of Things, IoT. Uh, we're going after Telesense, going after a niche of post-harvest grain storage, how to protect it, how to predict it. My last company was in mobile security, acquired by Oracle. If you have an iPhone with a touch ID, fingerprint sensing, we invented that technology. Apple bought that company with two hands in between. And uh, I have done other companies like QuickTurn, which went public. We design specialized emulation system. So every chip designed today uses that to, for chip design verification. So, so I've done a bunch of startup. I've uh, been on the board, advisory board of uh, 45 companies. I'm an angel investor as well as a, a pretty active in nonprofit world teaching entrepreneurship as a way to combat uh, terrorism and poverty. I've been teaching at UC Berkeley for 12 years. I teach the courses in innovation, entrepreneurship, and strategy. I've been also teach at Brown University. I'm professor of the practice at Northeastern University, and I'm the faculty director and adjunct professor. I've written five books and published 12 cases on Harvard Business School. So you have fantastic experience between, between the both of you. Um, tell us about Silicon Valley. Why is it so successful? From outside Silicon Valley, we're always told that this is the most successful entrepreneurial ecosystem or cluster in the world. Um, is that correct? And, and what's the secrets of that success? Lisa? You, you want to start? No, start. Go ahead. Because whatever you say, I'm going to disagree with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, well, have, let's have a debate. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I'm going to go back and add the fact that I started my career in Silicon Valley as a essentially a social entrepreneur in the, in the local media space. So starting um, a, a subscriber-owned cable system that was early in the using broadband for data transmission, and, and then started the, the first um, online site for the newspaper to have its, all its contents on the web back in 1994. So been doing some uh, social entrepreneurship for a long time. Um, so is this the most successful Innovation Center in the world? Is, is that it, what you is, said? Is it? I would say by a lot of measures, yes, um, it is. And I think it does have a lot to do with proximity and that people um, have access to all the parts of an ecosystem. And um, it, it, it didn't happen overnight. And, um, and it is not something that couldn't go away either. Uh, because in fact, it, People come here a lot to try to replicate it. They come and they, they literally ride buses around. Uh, I, I live in Palo Alto, which likes to call itself the birthplace of Silicon Valley, um, the Hewlett Packard Garage. So people are really studying what, what it is, but it really is about an ecosystem. And part of that is, um, is the university. Stanford has been critical. Um, Naeem will talk to you about Berkeley, but I will probably talk to you about Stanford more and uh, the engineering talent, and, and certain, certain things that just happened that were, you could argue, flukes, but they were critical at different points in time. And then certain leaders, from, from Shockley to the Hewlett and Packard. So, so what were the critical flukes? Well, I think um, the opportunity, St Stanford um, had, had some people that were, that were interested in fostering entrepreneurship. And, Stanford as a university did not cling to the stock of the startups that came out of there. So there was a policy and an approach to licensing and technology transfer that was very different from a lot of other universities around the country. And I think that, that created incentives that um, then grew from there. I mean, it, it was kind of a branching situation. And one technology, I mean, you just described 
probably three situations where one technology enabled another one to develop. And because people are literally can, can meet, can talk to each other, and this, some of this was well before uh, technology enabled connection um, virtually, that, that was really important. And people could hire um, and, and cluster, and teams would move from one company to the next. So there was, there was kind of a, a, a collegial there, competition at the same time as there was a, a desire to, to do things and create things and make things that was kind of like wildfire. Naeem, you, you, you said you're going to disagree yeah. with, 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 with uh, Lisa as a matter of principle. So, yes, principle. Uh, no, I think uh, the one, it's not disagreement with, uh, with, uh, with Lisa because she's, she's actually right. The, the most important one way to describe what's different about this place than any other place is culture. It's the culture which dictates how people do things when there are no written rules for it. So what is the culture of this place? And I have studied this thing quite a bit. It comes down to five elements which are unique to this place. Number one is a sense of collaboration. You can ask anybody, and I want you to test it. Ask anybody, hey, what are you working on? And you'll get a cogent, fairly detailed answer. You ask the same question in London, what are you working on? What do you do? And I'll be met with some skepticism, like, why do you ask? I can ask this question in Moscow. They'll say, who sent you? So <laughs> this is not a question you'll ever hear that. You ask somebody working on, and they'll give you a reasonably detailed answer. I just told you working on post-harvest grain storage using IoT. So this is a normal part of greeting, because this allows people to collaborate, find co-founders, find investors, find advisors. The second element of this thing is how there is a, a unique critical mass. I mean, I feel. I'm a misfit of society. I'm not normal. I'm strange. But here, I'm accepted as normal. This is, I feel more at home here. I'm weird back home. So this allows other people like me who are misfits of society come here and collaborate and create interesting things. Number three is the critical mass. Critical mass of engineers, lawyers, investors, marketers, all huddled in the same place. It won't be strange to go on a Saturday night at a party, and all the people you need to start a company are right there and companies do get started. But the, maybe the most important thing is how we treat failure. Failure is not a scarlet letter around you like it is in Germany and some other countries. Here you could fail and you are more valuable to the next guy and you get a job with a higher salary because you have somebody else has paid the tuition for your learning so I don't have to. And that's extremely interesting. So it doesn't stop me from taking, trying all kinds of things because I'm just polishing my sword for the ultimate fight. So this culture, and what Lisa said, I want to build on that. Stanford, actually I have to go to one person, Terman. Terman encouraged faculty members to engage with industry. This is frowned upon. In, you know, in some other countries, you, you're working with a startup, and you're also a professor, like, where are you really spending your time? But here, yeah, please go ahead and do that. The Stanford president, the last president, he was the uh, Hennessy. He was a, uh, on the, he started MIPS, he was the CEO of MIPS, he was on the board of Google, and he was a president of Stanford and professor. So this collaboration, which started 50 years ago, has played tremendous dividends. So this also happens in Berkeley. There I can list 20 companies started by professors, have been extremely big. So this culture is different than any other place. This is frowned upon. We also Jochen. have good weather. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's crucial. Jochen. So you preempted my question. I'm afraid you've answered it already. But I, before going here, I talked in my, in my network about this. And they said, well, why are you going to Silicon Valley? 
you need to go to China if you want to see the future of technology. You need to go to Shenzhen if you want to see the next Silicon Valley. Um, so what is it about Silicon Valley that will outlast these sort of future competing clusters that are probably you know, looking to replicate this kind of culture? What is unique about this place that can facilitate that kind of culture? If you want to see a great factory, go to Shenzhen. Absolutely. They, they, nobody runs a factory like they do over there. But it's not about factories, it's about innovation. Innovation comes from connecting the dots in a weird way which normal people do not connect. That weird way comes from a weird thinking, weird education, and the weird way to collaborate. That's what is unique here. We're not great at manufacturing. We are okay at manufacturing. Shenzhen is much better. But it's not about running a clean, good factory. It's about something else. Well, and I would say that it's, um, I've been to China, and I've, I've received many people from, from China here in various contexts. And it's very top down there. And we are very bottom up. We are people seeing a problem. The problem may not be that they end up solving is not the one that they first saw or got interested in. So there's a lot of sort of accidental things that happen running into people. But it's, it's really anybody could do it. It's this notion that you aren't told to do it. You aren't commanded to do it. You are inspired and motivated to do it. I mean, what are the probability in Japan, Singapore, and even China? A CEO says we're going left, and a worker says, well, why? Why not right? I have to defend myself every day. My employees, I'm saying we're going this strategy, is why? Why not? And I have to explain. This kind of a chiseling away on idea, there's no hierarchy, and able to refine the idea is essential to creativity. I love to see that happening in China. Do you, do you think that that suggests that Silicon Valley is not replicable elsewhere because of the unique culture? But we do see high technology clusters developing in China, and yeah. in India, and in Europe that have a different cultural background. No, I'm not saying they will never be done. They will be done. But my point I'm making is it took 70 years of making the culture. Can this culture be done some places? Absolutely. But don't expect to do it in two years. Yeah. Well, and also, we'll ha it would have its own flavor. I mean, yeah. if it didn't, there would be something yeah. not real about it. So I think it's kind of building on the strength of what is kind yeah. of coming out of a given area. Okay, so we're talking about you know the, the, the importance of culture and individual responsibility and not being top-down. What's the role of government in all of this? Does government help or hinder innovation? No, government's role is very clear, in my mind at least. Government's role is to set up the rules and get out of the way. I mean, imagine playing a football match when both teams have different rules and different size goals. That certainly would not be a fair match, and people won't even enjoy it. So this is a, the role of government to set those rules, make them fair, and get out of the way. And I think government, at, in large, has done a reasonable job. Of course, they're not perfect, and we have to go and correct them all the time. But there's a role, and role is useful. I think that the clean tech um, industry is a great example of that. Here in California, where the state has clear goals, and there's a law, AB 32, which is saying there needs to be 33% renewables by a certain date, and it creates certainty yeah. around which companies can, can create solutions. And oftentimes, there's long-term investment, and, and again, a, a sub-ecosystem for a particular um, achieving certain goals, and you can't do it if you're wondering where the government stands. And I think California has done a very good job in certain regards, and clean energy, clean air, and, and our like whole automotive environment. Automotive standards. Automotive standards. Absolutely. All of those have done a really great job, and in fact have, 
have, you know, sort of, so goes California, so goes the nation in many, many regards. Okay, so government's there. great for setting, setting the rules of the game, yeah. standards, rules and regulations. And being a market, very often. And, be, and being a very cool, important customer. And so that's what I was going to get on to. What about in the early stages of this, yeah. the Silicon Valley development? A lot of military expenditure was coming Absolutely. into Absolutely. See, when, when World War II was going on, Harvard and MIT were getting on the order of about $800 million a year in government research grants. How much was California getting? $50,000. So it was a, and Terman, which I can go back to Stanford, he's fixed that problem. He set up and set up a stealth laboratory and brought a lot of the research money. A lot of companies got started. Unfortunately, because of student protest, we had to shut down that lab in 1969. But that notwithstanding, that was the germination. So the initial seed money came from government. And you may not know this, some of you may not be from US, there are 14 U.S. departments, Department of Energy, Department of Defense, Department of Transportation. They all have, by law, spent 2.4% of non-discretionary budget in small business innovation research grants. And a lot of technology which developed in universities seek these SBIR grants and take them next stage. I'm an investor in a company when we're trying to do the next generation LEDs. Uh, we raised the initial $300,000 but we got $4 million in grants so that we can take the technology forward. It was so risky, VC will not touch it. Hmm. And just last week, we closed yeah. a $2.4 million round. So now. if you can't get VC funding, getting a grant or having government as a customer can be very crucial in the early stages. Yeah, for highly technical things, and it's a very competitive process. It's not doling yeah. out yeah. to your friend. I have applied for my company four times, got zero. So it's difficult. Well, and, and in my world, there's very often an opportunity that could be considered a great opportunity. It's just not a venture scale opportunity. There's not going to be a 10x or greater return. So, um, you know, there's an organization called Benetech that has developed technologies for those with low, you know, low vision or other, other problems that don't have a huge market opportunity, but there is a real market opportunity. And they have spun it off, and sometimes it's a matter of timing that later it can be that opportunity, but not right away. What about the potential downsides of what's going on in, in Silicon Valley? I mean, we, we tend to think the word innovation is great. Innovation encourages economic growth and prosperity, hopefully has social and environmental benefits as well. But there are people who are concerned about some of the dominance of high technology businesses that have often evolved from this part of the world. Is there any downside or dark side of Silicon Valley? Yes, there are several downsides. I mean, for example, the two things I'm worried about right now, one is that how social media could be manipulated to, to monitor and tailor people's opinion. There are all kind of uh, posting I'm seeing on the Facebook, which makes my blood boil one way or another. And this is a way to divide the country and conquer the country. So we have to fight that back. The other thing you see, of course, is that artificial intelligence as it takes hold over the next 10, 20 years, the 40 hours work week and pay scale will alter. Many of the jobs, many of the profession we think will be automated from accountants to even lawyers to a whole bunch of professions. So how do we deal with that new dynamics of a society? Same thing with autonomous vehicle. Mm -hmm. The autonomous truck right there, the three and a half million jobs of long distance truck drivers. Yeah. So there are ramifications, but all of them, to me, as an entrepreneur, are opportunities to fix things. They're not disasters, they're opportunities. So do, do you think that's the attitude in the entire cluster? Because we've heard from others that said, well, this is a government problem. No, no, it's not a government problem. It's a, not a government problem. It's, a, it's an entrepreneur's problem to solve. 
I mean, that's what entrepreneurs do. So I would say it is not going to be solved by any one sector, and nor is it actually caused by any one sector. I mean, I think that government has allowed certain things to happen, and it's happened, and other, you know, we've got, we've got the academic, we've got nonprofit, we've got um, small companies and, and large ones, and they, they all play a part in kind of keeping things in check and solving, creating and solving the problems. Um, I think another dark side under belly is the gender inequality, sexual harassment, um, the role of women in the valley, and, and we are, I mean, I think that 20 years ago, 2%, you may have numbers more current, but 2% of uh, companies funded by venture firms are, are female founded, and it, that's still about the same percentage now. Yeah. So there's a, there are a lot of efforts uh, to change that, but it is back to culture. Culture has taken a while to build up, and people invest and um, and and create companies kind of in, with what they're familiar with. And so, it's been a male-dominated. But scene. is it a problem that it's male-dominated? Isn't this the, the sector to challenge a bit? Doesn't the sector attract? more male entrepreneurs than female entrepreneurs? It's a or, is, or is it really defined and recognized as a problem in the sector and are there initiatives to do something about this? Um, I think yes and yes. That it, it is a male-dominated, it's a virtuous cycle. And there, I think it's recognized. I mean, I think Naeem would agree that it, there is a desire for it to be otherwise and there are some efforts, but it, it is not going to be a quick fix. Yes, can I take some time? And uh, you know, right now, there are more women enrolled in colleges than men. So over the next 10 years, we'll see a shift. But, and culture will shift accordingly. But let me talk about one place when government role may be necessary. One word, CRISPR. As you know, CRISPR is the technology invented at Berkeley about gene editing. Professor Jennifer Doudna may get a Nobel Peace Prize someday, a Nobel Prize of Medicine on that day. So that, what can you do with it when you can edit the genes? You can edit out the bad portion. So good news is you can edit out the Parkinson gene from your DNA. But what else can you edit out? I mean, somewhere Hitler is rolling in his grave. So this is a very scary thing. This may be when the government does have to play a role to figure out what's okay and what's not okay. China right now is running wild with gene editing and other technology like that, which scares me. Well, and embedded in your question to switch from genes to uh, algorithms, I think, I think they're on, on the part of both Google and Facebook in the face of our government uh, election hacking, uh, there's a, a sense that we can just change an algorithm and that will fix the problem. And I think it's more nuanced than that. And we were talking before about the fact that that creates opportunities for smaller companies to to look at uh, pieces of the problems and 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 solve for them. For example, fake news. For example, yeah. fake news. And what, there's a there's what, a. How, how do we solve the fake news yeah. problem? Well, th there are algorithms being developed right now, and she knows also about them because you could. What if you can rank every news article comes out independently on a scale of one to one hundred? So you know the authenticity of the sources and the story. And it would be peer judged, reviewed, as well as algorithm assisted. So I'd, I would say, don't show me anything over 86 or below. Don't show it to me. I want to see only news item 86 and above. And 95 and above, I'm willing to pay 25 cents if I read it. If something like incentive structure like that was created, then that will. See, the one thing, if you can blame internet, why internet became the way it is, if you have to blame anybody, I would blame Visa. 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 
The reason internet is ad-based, because there was no way to do a microtransaction. You have to pay 30 cents plus 2.4% of the value. If I could pay half a cent to read a news article, I can pay two cents to read something even more important from a famous journalist, I would do that. People would have done that. But Visa, monopoly as they were, would not allow microtransaction. Thank God, Bitcoin, this problem may get solved. But if you have to blame anybody how internet, the way it's shaping a life, I'd blame Visa. Having worked in the, um, in the online media early in the early days, it was, we didn't have alternatives. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, so I lived that. Uh, just looking forward, what do you think Silicon Valley will look like in 30 years' time? What I'm very the, optimistic. You're, you're, you're optimistic. I mean, yeah. are other clusters going to take over, going back to your earlier clusters. point? Are, are we now, are we now going to be thinking about Shenzhen or China as we being will. the dominant areas? See, even today, there are clusters. For example, yeah. when you think of making a movie or, yeah. or Hollywood, you don't think Silicon Valley. You think Hollywood. When you think about financial innovation fintech, New York ranks right up there. So there are clusters of innovation depending on different places. When it comes to high technology, Silicon Valley happens to be, but by no means we are all things to all people. And even that will be replicated. Well, and I, I think we need to take a serious look right now. I mentioned earlier that we have 76,000 and growing uh, millionaires and billionaires in the two counties south of San Francisco. And there is a growing, growing wealth and uh, equally quickly growing inequality so that if we don't address um, that and create a sustainable way of living here, which includes you know, the education and the, the workforce yeah. that's not looking backwards to what we wish was still here, but looking forwards to, to what is realistic and what is, um, what's, what's possible. Um, but if we, if, we turn our, if we turn away from that inequality and don't address it, I think we will we are, we are in danger of imploding because it's not going to be an affordable place to have the very kind of ecosystem that, that created it in the first place and that feeds it because it is a living, it's a living ecosystem. This is not you know, like planted and it, you're done. It's, you have to nurture it and people have to, of all different backgrounds, need to be able to afford to live here. And so this is a good point. Let's take an example of a three-bedroom, two-bathroom house. A house like that will cost anywhere from $100,000 to $200,000 in anywhere in America. The same house here in San Jose will cost $700,000. And that's an affordable house around here. And then you come up to Palo Alto, when Lisa lives, that cost is $3 million. It comes to Hillsborough, there's no house like that, but if there was a house, that's five to $7 million. So imagine a firefighter, a police officer, elementary school teacher, can they afford to live there? They cannot. So this is, could be the danger. Even an entry-level coder. Yeah. This is a danger to Silicon Valley, that people you need to run a city are no longer can be in the city. So that creates another innovation opportunity. Yes. And that's what we're working on at SB2, is the opportunity to solve the sexual harassment problem or to solve the, um, how, how do you scale learning opportunities for children in, in rural areas or that don't have tech, access to technology. I mean, how do, you, how do you do that? So we're working on a lot of different kinds of problems and that, that are addressing these various issues that are evidence-based. And again, we're collaborating with universities and so, government. So, so do you think it's just a matter of time for these issues to be solved? Or do you think there is an ingredient that's missing or underdeveloped that you think 
we would need to work on as a question. The social issues that I was yeah. just describing? I think it's really, um, I think it's people, particularly people that have had success, deciding, I mean, obviously, Naeem is somebody who's engaged in not just his um, own companies, but in, in a lot of different things, teaching and, and working on, on the social side. I think people need, they aren't connected to the issues on a daily basis. So they have to kind of wake up and decide. I think we're at a moment right now. And I think a lot of people are. And so it's going to be a matter of leadership. And it doesn't take, like Mark Benioff from Salesforce is a huge advocate for addressing these issues in a wide range of ways. And he, you know, he knocks on the doors of his colleagues and says, you need to come along. And there are others like that. I'm conscious of the time. Um, I'd particularly like to, both Joachim and I would like to thank both Lisa and Naeem for coming and giving us these great insights on the, both the, the strength of Silicon Valley and the future challenges facing Silicon Valley. These are things that we will address in future podcasts when we think about the growth of high technology clusters, the challenges of innovation and innovation to be socially inclusive to benefit all people. So thank you very much for listening to this podcast. You can find out more information about the Executive MBA program, one of our flagship programs, on our website. And we look forward to having future podcasts on these very important issues. Thank you very much. For those listening, if you want to contact us, um, we're on Twitter at CambridgeJBS or other social media, and you can contact us through our website. Uh, thank you all for joining us, and I hope you can join us next time.